Previously on the Great James Bond Car Robbery. Robert never respected Anthony because Robert went to Harvard. I was his lion. I was here to fight for him. This is a very special car. It's, it's, it's more than just about the movie. That was where I first became aware that he was doing all of this for no pay. This would go under the no good deed goes unpunished category. You're going to go to in front of a jury and the jury's going to side with Robert Luongo. The two of them hated each other. Literally hated each other. Welcome to the Great James Bond Car Robbery with me, Elizabeth Hurley. Episode 6, Riot on the Champs-Élysées. Goldfinger. Goldfinger. This is Mike Ashley. Shirley Bassey wasn't available. It's on tonight at your local movie. Go drive the Aston and go watch it and take a lovely young lady to dinner, Goldfinger. <laughs> As you'll hear, Mike is in fact a crucial link in the story of the DB5, the great lost stolen Goldfinger DB5. Without him, chances are we wouldn't still be talking about it half a century later. Probably the best way to explain why is to start with one night in the 60s, February 19th, 1965 to be precise, and the place, Paris. The city of Gainsbourg, Brigitte Bardot, and looking nonchalant with a cigarette hanging off your lip. Right now on the Champs-Élysées, in the center of the capital, a commotion has broken out. Newsreel of the time shows a motorcade framed by the Arc de Triomphe surrounded by a swarm of eager paparazzi shouting, calling, flashbulbs popping. And at the center of it all, a silver Aston Martin DB5 cruising sedately to its destination. And behind the wheel is... Yes, Sean Connery. Young, beautiful Sean, smiling a film star grin. One would never guess that he's in the midst of a driving lesson of sorts. He wanted me to drive, and I said, I can't do that. You have to look like James Bond. So I was in the passenger seat showing him how to use a ZF gearbox. Mike is Connery's official instructor in the art of driving the DB5 like a super spy. He was very nice to me. Very, very dry sense of humor. With Mike's help, they navigate the crowds and arrive at their destination. The cinema hosting the country's theatrical premiere of Goldfinger. Then the biggest Bond film ever made. Paris has gone all out. The whole of the front of the theatre is plastered with huge images of Bond and Bond girls. Inside, there are 50 women dressed in gold to greet 007. Including a couple of gorgeous models, by the way, who were there. And outside are the fans. The crowds were just unbelievable. We had no security in those days. The sounds of car horns, cheers, screams and flashbulbs are deafening. It's chaos. Film premieres are different in 1965. There is no roped-off red carpet, no orderly procession of the stars into the venue. Instead, 
press and fans swarm the DB5. Mike exits the car to help Sean out. In that moment, an overzealous fan seizes an opportunity. I'd left my passenger window open and some lady leapt through the window into his lap. In the footage of the premiere, you can see the woman sitting inside the car, understandably pleased with herself. And you can also see the look of sheer fear on Connery's face as the fans surge forward and the police try to lift him to safety. 007 is clearly shaken. We had a bit of trouble actually trying to secure the car because a lot of people wanted to tear it apart or take souvenirs off it. The French media call this the sweet whisper of celebrity. It takes some effort, but eventually Sean, flanked on all sides by gendarmes, is able to push past the fans reaching out to grab him. Somehow, he makes it into the theater unharmed. After this incident, Connery actually stops attending James Bond premieres. Even for 007, the risk of injury for female fans is just too great. For Mike Ashley and the DB5, however, there are more nights of premieres and screaming fans ahead. And on that night, it was clear that something had changed. Not only had Bond, the ultimate British hero, gone global, but for the first time, a car had also become a movie star in its own right. In this episode, we'll be exploring how that happened. As we'll hear, it's a process that didn't just involve movie premieres and paparazzi. It didn't even just involve real cars. It also meant an all-out war for control of a world of miniature DB5s as well. A war played out on living room rugs and kitchen floors across the world. A conflict that has become known as the Great British Toy Car War. Mike's relationship with the DB5 starts because of his job. An Aston Martin salesman, he is in his early 20s when the company begins production of a new top-of-the-range sports car. Not many people are around who can still remember the DB5's original handmade production line back in those days. Yeah, yeah. They were all hand put together. They would beat the panels on wood blocks. Beat them by hand with hammers, that is. How they ever did it with just hammers on a wooden block, I don't know, but they got it absolutely smooth. And meantime, in the engine department, there were six guys doing engines. You could tell from the sound of an engine which guy in the shop had built that engine. Mike's assigned to what the Aston bigwigs clearly see as a minor chore shepherding one of these brand new sports cars to and from the set of an upcoming spy movie. They were talking about somebody needs to take care of it. So I went back and forth with the car to Pinewood Studios. Keeping an eye on things on behalf of his bosses. It becomes clear that these film people are going to be making some quite strange alterations to the car. I saw some of the filming and they'd send me back and said, put machine guns on it and the factory would say, who are these crazy people? But even though the car is filling up with machine guns and ejector seats and tracking devices... It's a responsibility he doesn't find particularly exciting at first. It was more like, well, cars in a movie, so what? Until he realizes that this job has given him access to something special. He is one of the very first people to get daily, extensive, practical experience of driving a DB5 at a time when the car was still almost a prototype. I drove it everywhere. It was like my personal car. <laughs> It's a real gentleman's touring car. Very quiet inside, very luxurious inside. It's as steady as a rock. 
and, and he handles on roads absolutely spectacularly. I mean, one of the most extraordinary things was it had power windows. And it was funny in traffic in London, you'd draw up to somebody and you just flip the window down, it would go down and people would look at you. How did they do that? Because everybody else is winding and winding, you know what I mean? Um, it's a magic piece of a fantastic car. So, few people know the fantastic car as well as Mike. And when it's decided to send the DB5 on tour with Connery to promote the film, Mike is charged with accompanying it again. It starts with destinations across Europe, England, France, Germany, Italy. Stopped in Monte Carlo for the Monte Carlo rally for the end of that. Switzerland. They sent me up to San Moritz and kitted me out with skis and put me in the Palace Hotel. I had a blast. And Ken Adams' additions to the vehicle proved surprisingly effective. Once in a while, if I was on the highway or something like that, and some sports car was behind me, I'd, I'd put the bulletproof shield up out of the trunk, which would confuse them. <laughs> and if I was at the lights and they were studying the front of the car, I'd pop the machine guns out, and the, these guys in their sports cars would go nuts. <laughs> One evening, he's driving through France. I'm zipping along at about 120 miles an hour, which was a pretty good speed for that car. And there are a couple of gendarmes checking the cars in. I said, it suddenly dawned on me. I wonder if they got me speeding back there. Thinking fast, Mike uses the DB5's license plate changer, which spins to replace the British plate with a Swiss one, just as he arrives at the next police checkpoint. Thank you, Q. It's a beautiful white plate with the Swiss flag on it. And as I approached the gendarmes, one of them was saying to the um, um, no, n'est-ce pas anglais, c'est une voiture de Suisse. In other words, it's not an English car, it's a Swiss car. And they waved me through, just like that. And I'm sure it was me they were looking for. <laughs> so that did work. By now, Goldfinger and Bond mania is sweeping the world. Mike and the DB5 take in LA, Chicago, San Francisco, New York. New York was crazy. And, and the, I remember the dinner afterwards was at Sardi's, which was a great place. We had a fantastic dinner. And fly into Florida. Yes, Florida. Strangely, at that time too, the DB5 was also part of a disappearing act at a Florida airport, albeit briefly. I started the engine when it was coming out of the cabin of the aircraft so that when we landed on the ground, it would be warmed up and I could take off at speed and show all the press because there was a lot of press there greeting it. And you won't believe it, when I'm up in the air, somehow the smoke screen triggered off. One of the working gadgets installed by Ken Adam and John Steers. And this huge black wave of smoke enveloped the car, the plane. It was just a disaster. But I've got a picture of it here. And it's uh, headlines of the Miami Herald from London with, with love, blood, sweat and tears. And here's this car coming out enveloped in smoke. <laughs> Mike's association with the DB5 opens doors. He rubs shoulders with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Dean actually became a reasonably good friend of mine. And found that the fans are also interested in him too. Here's Mike reading from another newspaper article at the time. He's been besieged, inundated, drowned by waves of women who have, by virtue of their peculiarly biological reasoning processes, equated the fictional James Bond with the real Mike Ashley. <laughs> this whole time, ever since Sean Connery bowed out of doing further premieres, the world tour has been continuing without 007 himself. And the strange thing is, it doesn't seem to make a difference to the crowds, the fans or the press. 
The DB5 means Bond as much as martinis, tuxedos, or Sean Connery himself. I thought, wow, this thing is famous. I mean, it's written up everywhere, let alone all the TV stations it was on. Staggering. Arguably, this is the moment when the long process of myth-making comes of age. A process that started with Ian Fleming's dream of a car-obsessed secret agent, filtered through the World War II gadgets of Charles Fraser Smith and refined by the sheer creativity of Ken Adam. The dream had become a reality. From here on, DB5s become a legend in their own right. Yeah, Aston Martins, the fastest truck ever built. Popular even with other 60s British legends. We spoke to one of them, Roger Daltrey, lead singer of The Who. It's something about young blokes and cars. It's not hasn't changed today, is it? It's confidence building when you're young. You've got to have aspiration. By the middle of the decade, a DB5 minus the gadgets was one of the few status symbols that even rock gods like The Who still aspired to. The connection between Bond and swinging London. But I was very jealous of Mick Jagger. He had a blue one. Paul McCartney as well. Very jealous of them because they had the DB5 and I couldn't afford it. <laughs> Don't feel too sorry for Roger. In between playing Woodstock, conquering the world and creating some of the greatest rock songs of all time, he managed to get his hands on a DB4, almost indistinguishable from a DB5, and it made an impression. It was a very pullable car. <laughs> pullable. Let's say that 60s London for seductive. It was a drop-dead, you know... Crumpet motor. <laughs> I'll leave that one to your imagination. But like I say, it, it's the fastest truck Britain has ever built. I mean, everybody raves about that car. They, they were beautifully made. They, there was no doubt about that. But engineering-wise, brake-wise, the clutch was like, you know, you, you needed to be a weightlifter to push it. <laughs> um, but equally, for those days, it was a fast car. Lethally fast, really, because they, they didn't have the brakes to match. Roger bought his in 1966, and the story he shares gives an insight into just how popular Aston Martins had got by this time, how people reacted to them. I went on a long tour of, of, of America for three months with The Who, and I actually lent it to my mate to look after my car, my, my prized possession. Uh, and when I came back off tour, there they were at the airport picking me up. In my car, and it was my Aston Martin. It was kind of a creamy white colour. Pretty car. And great uh, got in the car, and they drove me home. Anyway, it was only like the day later when I actually took the car out. I thought, oh, this is not quite the car I left them with. It was driving funny and parking funny? For one thing, when I came to park it, I could get it in a, in, in a space that, you know, it was half the size of what it should have been. <laughs> and I kind of thought, well, this is really weird. So I got out and looked at it. And indeed, there was something really wrong. But simply, the car had shrunk. Yes, shrunk. The front end kind of shortened and the, the arch of the wheel didn't quite match the curvature of the, the, the wheel itself. I thought, how's that happened then? Because it all looked perfect. Anyway, so I, I fronted them up. I said, you know, what have you done to my car? Come on, tell me, what, what have you done to my car? Roger's friends are all mechanics, and he knows how to tinker a bit himself. In those days, we had to be into fixing our own cars. So that's what we did. 
So anyway, come on, guys, own up. What have you done? George the Weld, as we called him, went very quiet. <laughs> he was very good at welding, George. Um, Nobby the fiberglass kid started giggling. <laughs> uh, and J-Mo the rub um, walked away. <laughs> so, well, maybe that, that was, that's not that their nicknames. Anyway, then George said, well, we have a confession to make, Rog. We, we, we had a prang in it. A prang, a car accident. Don't worry, there won't be a vocab test at the end. I said, what do you mean you had a prang in it? We said, well, we, we went into the back of a coach. A coach? That's a private bus. And um, smashed the front up. I said, yes. What, how, why did you go into the back of the coach? Well, they said, well, we were going down the King's Road. And, you know, we, because Aston Martin on the King's Road, you were Jack the Lad. You were the bee's knees. Jack the Lad and the bee's knees, a virile and esteemed young gentleman, lacking nothing. Okay, maybe there should be a test. And they were behind this coach. They were full of women, apparently, at the back window going, whoa, three blokes in an Aston Martin. <laughs> and, of course, before you know it, they've gone right up the back of the coach and they've shortened the car by about two foot. <laughs> As mechanics, they'd managed to patch together a repair job, but the Aston parts they had to hand weren't quite right and neither was the welding, hence the shrink-to-fit look. <laughs> And that's why it was shorter. And I finally got rid of the thing. I got so fed up with it. It just wouldn't drive properly. I tried everything with it. Where it went, I don't know. I really do pity the poor guy who bought it. And I swapped it for a Mini. <laughs> but the, the car was the status symbol. You know, you think of the poor blooming people that lived in the Soviet Union block. All they could aspire to was a Lada. And if you didn't aspire to a larder, you had the good fortune to be given a trabant <laughs> made of papier-mâché. <laughs> you know, so we were very fortunate. Meanwhile, Mike Ashley's time with the ultimate 60s status symbol was coming to an end. After his global tour wraps up, Mike returns the DB5 to the Aston Martin factory. When that car finally got back to the factory, they took a lot of that equipment off at some point. Some of the guys in the factory got things like one guy got the license plate, another guy got that um, got that gear shift. You know, took it. I wish I'd done it. Put it in my pocket. That's right. Amazingly, the Goldfinger DB5 was stripped of the remarkable bespoke additions that made it a Bond car. As hard as it is to believe. Aston still saw Bond as a minor distraction. I, I, I called this one one of the most boneheaded moves in all of autodom. This is Mary Sealhorst, whom we heard from in episode one, museum curator, writer, and DB5 obsessive. They took out all of the gadgets and just sort of restored it somewhat as a DB5 and sold it as a used car. And they knew at this point that these cars were really popular. <laughs> and it just it, it just cracked me up. It's like, who was thinking? What, you know, what were they thinking when they did that? Like holy relics, bits of the car's original weaponry have continued to change hands at auction ever since. But back in the 60s, there was another much simpler way that anyone could have their own piece of a DB5. Yeah, actually, I have it right here. Okay, I am, I'm going to run my 
James Bond, Aston Martin, across my desk. I'm adding the deep sound, the cornering. It's a little model of the Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger, and it's it's all tricked out just like the original car with all of the Q-branch minor modifications. The fact is that while the real DB5 was being mobbed at premieres, another struggle was also taking place, this time for the attention and pocket money of kids. Welcome to the Great British Toy Car War. Uh, it has the little passenger ejector seat with a little guy sitting in it. In this case, you're ejecting the passenger, so it's great for that blind date that doesn't go so well, you know. And, you know, I think that encourages you to sort of put yourself into this vehicle in your mind. You can imagine yourself as Bond. You can imagine yourself driving this car. Mary isn't alone. Almost everyone we interviewed for this podcast said they once had or still have one of those toy DB5s, including this guy. They're very comforting. Have one under your pillow at all times. And then you can go to bed making muffled engine noises. Or is it just me? That sounds quite soothing, actually. This is Giles Chapman. A classic car journalist and and book author for sort of 35 years. One of his books is Britain's Toy Car Wars, and it helps explain the multi-generational appeal of the DB5. But let's start at the beginning. In the early 60s, toy cars were a big deal, bigger than a simple metal toy could ever be now. The currency of the schoolyard, bought, collected, swapped and traded, and any company that could control that market would have a very bright future. In Britain, three toy car companies were fighting for that control. The intense battle between three different brands of British toy car, Dinky, Corgi and Matchbox. And for the next 30 years, these three British companies were absolutely at each other's throats to get your pocket money. Even if you don't recognise the names, you know the toys he's talking about. Here's the British 1960s childhood version of how it worked, and it is very British. The matchbox ones, they're quite cheap, a couple of shillings, often sold in tobacconists or newsagents. So you go down with your dad to get a paper on a Saturday morning, you see the display, hopefully you've been a good boy all week and you're sort of going, dad, dad, can I have one? And he'll sort of, you know, as he's, as he's getting his woodbines, he'll, he'll get you one. Woodbines are a brand of British cigarette. Whereas a sort of corgi or a dinky was considerably more expensive. That might have been the thing that you either got for a birthday or for Christmas. But there was no other country in the world that had three toy car manufacturers like this. They were the key exports to the States, Australia, Japan, Europe, and so on. These toy cars were mostly simple, didn't have any moving parts. Before Goldfink, you didn't get many movie tie-ins or merch deals. Instead, they were most often accurate models of things that you might have seen on the road, maybe even things that your dad drove. You know, if your dad was a lorry driver or drove a digger or a milk float, there would have been a great deal of satisfaction in just having that miniaturised thing that you knew about or, or admired. So the battlefields were set. Three companies, one market, each trying to outmanoeuvre the other and do down the opposition. And, as in a real war, elite crack troops were needed to ensure victory. Yes, Hello. yes. You're making me feel famous already. I know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling quite embarrassed. <laughs> John Marshall and Tim Richards worked behind the scenes at Corgi at that time. 
John was an engineer. Tim was a sculptor, designing new model cars to grab the attention of kids around the world. We spoke to them on the phone due to COVID restrictions. We worked in a very, very secret room. It was called, yes. oddly enough, the, the sample room. room. We were locked behind closed doors. We were. This is yes. James Bondish in itself. If there was a toy car war afoot, these were the guys equipping the front line with weapons and gadgets to fight it. Top secret stuff. <laughs> yeah. I never knew quite why it was called the sample room. I mean, anybody that visited or came to the room had to prove who they were. And, and, and the drawing office, we're right slap bang next to the drawing office, yeah. which was also very secret. Which makes sense. Just as in any Bond film, the research lab was under constant risk of covert intelligence gathering from the enemy. There was the fateful time all three companies came out with nearly identical toy double-decker buses. Had someone leaked the plans? In actual fact, a lot of uh, industrial es- espionage took place. Companies were very keen to get in first in any new idea. And uh, ideas were like gold dust. And it was into this environment in 1964 that Goldfinger was released in Britain. Giles again. One day, someone left the local newspaper on the desk of the Corgi boss with some pictures of the premiere of Goldfinger. So this would have been late 64, and a sort of big, um, I, w- I would say with a post-it note on it, but they didn't exist in those days, so presumably a big crayon mark with an arrow saying, we should do this. Meaning maybe we should make a Goldfinger gadget car. And the guy looked at it and he just thought, oh, no, it's far too complicated. Even Corgi's most advanced car at this point had not much more than doors that opened. Miniaturised Ken Adams-style ejector seats and machine guns on a four-inch long toy car? Impossible! But over the next few weeks, the popularity of the film was such, and it was opening in more and more countries around the world, that he realised he'd made an enormous mistake. And I think, he, I think over one weekend, he just decided he'd messed up. John and Tim were witnesses to what happened next. Do you remember this, John? Yes. Do you remember was- this? It became, I was it in the a, meeting. They all came walking in, all the big shots, you know. And um, this little group of <laughs> directors were wondering whether they should actually go ahead and make this damn thing. Yes. Because the film was out. Goldfinger was out. And I remember him saying, we've missed the bloody boat. And they said, right, I think we better investigate it and have a go at it. The thing that I always remember is how close they got to not making the thing, really. And responsibility for creating the thing fell on John and Tim's team. It was a close-run thing, really, because they definitely thought it was a bit of a, ooh, OK, it's a bit late, let's see how it goes, sort of thing. And normally, the development process for one of these toy cars is a couple of years, because there was no computer data in those days. You, you'd have to go and find one of the cars, put your white coat on, and get sort of tape measures and rulers and you know, a sort of box brownie camera, and you'd have to sort of extrapolate the data from the thing as it existed. But with Goldfinger already in cinemas, there's no time for proper research and development. Corgi needs the toy in stores yesterday. They decided to repurpose a toy the company already had to hand, our car's predecessor, an Aston Martin DB4. But turning a simple DB4 into a gadget-filled interactive spy car was a tall order. Oh, and the bosses wanted a fully functional 1 to 46 scale working ejector seat in it. It was the next morning when I went to the stock room and booked two of these DB4s out. Yeah. The first thing, of course, was I wanted to make the hole in the roof. Yes, yes. And uh, then what sort of size 
the roof was going to be to still preserve the strength of the cars. Too big a hole for the ejector seat to eject through and the toy would fall to bits. Too small and Bond's target wouldn't achieve liftoff. It's got about 48 components in it. Everything's going to have to be made from scratch. But amazingly... Within a week, I got this prototype working. John was a whiz kid who, who came up with all the amazing mechanisms. As impressive a feat as that was, and it was impressive, having a working prototype was only the beginning. Because the car's design actually had to be sturdier than a real-life DB5. 007 only had to operate his ejector seat once. Whereas here they're making a toy that's going to be played with to destruction. That's the point. So the prototype moved to the next stage, rigorous testing. That responsibility also fell to John Marshall. He had to set up these test rigs, which would open and close the roof panel an obscene number of times, more times than you would ever do, you know, as a kid, just to find, to find out what the breaking point of the thing was going to be. That's a lot to do. No computers at all. So you, you can't, you can't analyse it in any digital way. And once again, John came through. He built a model that could withstand even the most demanding mission. Tests showed the ejector seat could operate 20,000 times before braking. Enough for even the most careless agent. Corgi's DB5 was similar to a real Bond car in other ways. They packed so much detail inside this thing, but it's amazing, it's incredible. There are three key features, all operated by little buttons around the perimeter of the car's body panels. The one at the front shoots out a couple of machine guns, which are concealed behind the bumper. The one underneath the door opens the roof panel and operates the ejector seat. And a little guy with no legs because it wouldn't fit into the car if he had them, then shoots up and somewhere into the living room, lost forever. Then at the back, if you push the exhaust pipes in, the bullet shield rises. So it's pretty compact. And there's nothing on the outside, really, apart from those little buttons that destroys the authenticity of the Aston Martin. It was an incredible achievement. Goldfinger's London premiere took place in late 1964. Corgi released its toy DB5 less than a year later. In the same way that the film gripped the imagination of the world, people couldn't get enough of this tiny, meticulously engineered and, most importantly, hugely fun toy. Corgi had won a decisive victory over the opposition. There was an absolute Ferrari for it. This was actually the first ever blockbuster toy. It was coming up to Christmas it's and Christmas, the, the, right. the, news, the newspapers were full of it. Yeah, they couldn't make enough. I mean, they sold no. quicker than you. I mean, they just disappeared off the shelves like nobody's business. I think it took the company aback, really, just how successful it was, to be honest. Of course, any effective military operation also depends on propaganda. Newsflash, James Bond crashes into toy shop. This is from Corgi's ad campaign to toy shop owners at the time, done up as a fake newspaper. A top priority report reveals that James Bond's exclusively built Aston Martin DB5 has roared into your toy shop. Eyewitnesses claim that the demand for this car has reached fantastic figures. No sooner in than out, said one leading Corgi stockist. Never known such a rush, says another. People were trying to to sort of worm their way into the stockroom to get one. You know, it was, it was really over the top. Nothing like this had ever been seen in, in toy cars. By the time the holiday season was over, Corgi had produced a staggering 750,000 toy DB5s. The successful marketing relationship between Goldfinger and Corgi proved to be a winning formula. 
for decades after, the Bond franchise would be associated with Corgi, and Corgi's next spy car was an upgraded DB5. In 1969, they then brought out a Mark II of this car. You know, we're talking about a film that is then six years old, and it had some extra features. It had tyre slashes on the back, then finally had the revolving number plates, which they would not have had the time to do in the previous one. That in itself went on to sell you know, millions and millions. Then in in 1977, they did it again in a different size, all the same features. They continued making that until 1983. So what does all this have to do with the enduring fame of the actual full-size Goldfinger DB5? Well, on one hand, you've got a film that obsessed cinema goers in the 60s, popular enough to start riots in Paris and send Mike Ashley on a round-the-world tour. Those moviegoers, teenagers and adults, were the first wave of DB5 fans. But the film Goldfinger is not really suitable for kids, and that's where Corgi comes in. They're certainly not allowed to watch James Bond movies when they're sort of four or five, but they get a toy with lots of features, and then they sort of, they sort of grow into an appreciation of the movies through having this thing that they didn't wholly understand in the first place. The toy DB5 spreads the word through the playgrounds and Christmas wish lists of an even younger generation. Several generations of kids, in fact, from 1965 all the way up to 1983. Giles was one of them. They were just the things I always wanted for my birthday and for Christmas. I was obsessed about. It seemed to have so much inside it that was packed into something about the size of a marathon. Marathons are a type of British chocolate bar, Snickers. And had all these kind of little buttons that made stuff function. I got no idea how it worked. And the generations of kids who played with John and Tim's ejector seats, they would grow up to be the car collectors, dealers and automobile obsessives of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. A second wave. The overall publicity and awareness of their film franchise from that toy car is just... Well, I'm going to use the, use the get out and say incalculable because I, I don't quite know how you could ever you could ever encapsulate it. And you have to wonder, was whoever ordered the theft of the DB5 from Boca Raton Airport one of those obsessives too? Somebody definitely did it for money, but at the end of that chain, there's somebody that did it for passion. Carlo Borromeo was a DB5 obsessed youngster too. He's the car designer we spoke to in episode one. So at the end at the end of this chain of thieves, there must be somebody who saw the movie as a kid and it just stuck in his head, you know, and he needed to have that car. Um, those, those kind of needs are only started when you're a kid. I don't think you can form them uh, later in life. The DB5 has become a a Bond motif that, that didn't exist in the books, but does exist on screen and certainly does exist in the minds of all us grown-up kids through Corgi Toys. It's been decades since Mike Ashley took his whirlwind global tour with the DB5, but the car has never been far from his mind. In fact, he has a collection of toy cars too. And by the way, on my desk here, I've got about a dozen Astons. This is a Gato, the 07 one. I've got several that are the James Bond cars. I've got a gold one. Yeah, I've got a silver one from the Danbury Mill, beautiful silver one. I've got the original Corgi one in the box. Years ago, Mike moved to his current home in Miami Beach, Florida. It's about 80 kilometers away from Boca Raton. 
On arrival, he thought he'd give Anthony Pugliese a ring and introduce himself as a previous driver of the missing car. I was trying to get a hold of him because I wanted to go up and have a, a good old dinner with him and pour some wine in him and all this and that. And at the end of the dinner, say, just give me the keys for one more drive and see if he did. <laughs> but, that, but that never happened. But Mike hasn't given up hope of seeing the car again. Every time I'm swimming in the ocean around here, I'm looking for it, thinking it's been dumped in the ocean. <laughs> That's the allure of the DB5. Next time on The Great James Bond Car Robbery. And then the machine gun comes up out of the back and you control it with joysticks in the cab. I'm not going to leave my name, but that James Bond car, it wasn't stolen. Well, Robert threatened Anthony and said, I want 10% of the insurance proceeds. Robert did not know what happened to the car. I would categorically deny that Robert would have started such a rumor. What do you do with this car? It has no external value if you're not selling it legitimately. That's all in episode seven. The Great James Bond Car Robbery is brought to you by the Spyscape Podcast Network. The producers are Cup and Nuzzle. And if you want to know more about the epic toy battles of the 60s, we'd recommend Giles Chapman's brilliant book, Britain's Toy Car Wars, The War of Wheels Between Dinky, Corgi and Matchbox. Disclaimer, The Great James Bond Car Robbery is not affiliated with Eon Productions, Metro-Golden-Mayer Studios, Inc. or Danjack, LLC. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.